Bibles to Mark chapter number 8 this morning. Mark chapter number 8. We are, I believe, in the high 20s or early 30s of how many messages we've done in the book of Mark. And today, a shift takes place. The shift goes from seeing Jesus as a servant to seeing Jesus as the Savior, the one who's going to die for the sins of the world. The shift begins here. As we look at our text today, we're going to dive right in and see where we can get today. But Mark chapter number 8, look down at verse number 27. It says, And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This must happen. Do you see that? And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And, but when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. One minute, Peter makes a great statement. The next minute, he sticks his foot in his mouth. How many of us can say at times we are like Peter and we do things like that? One minute, it's amazing what we say. It's like, wow, that was really good. And then the next minute, it's like, that was really bad. You know, open mouth, insert foot type comment. Yeah, that's how Peter was. When we look here today, there are a lot of different opinions that people have about Jesus Christ in our world today. And really, we're going to look at today the most important question in all the world, the question that matters the most. Who do you say that Jesus is? A lot hangs in the balance on that one question. A lot of churches might have a difference in philosophies or maybe methods, methodology, whatever the case may be. And some of that stuff, it's neither here or there, it's whatever it is. But if you get this question wrong, you're in trouble. But there's so many opinions in this world about this question. I remember a while back, I was with a man out soul winning. And we were knocking doors, and I think, I believe it's a good thing to go house to house and knock doors. I think that's scriptural. I think that's a good thing. And some of you might say, well, I just don't know. Try it sometime. It's a good thing. And so you want to get your mind off of everything else in the world and be scared to death the door you go to? Just try it sometime. And uh, I get nervous every door I go to. Imagine, so this past couple of days, we've been up in Northern California. And we'll just say our county is not very strict on COVID guidelines. But up there, they are very strict. 
And you know, people have signs on their doors. Do not step within this amount of feet. They have, I saw several doors that had hand sanitizing stations out front of their door. And a box of masks there. They, so, you know, I was scared to talk to anyone because I'm thinking they're going to think I'm, you know, who is this guy? And, um, but we look and we think about Jesus. When I was out soloing with that man, he got talking to a Jehovah's Witness lady. And I think that there was some miscommunication there some, but the guy got the lady to the point to where she wanted to pray with him and accept Christ. And I'm like, and he's like, here, pastor, you do it. And I said, time out. I didn't quite do that signal, but I'm like, I, we got to make sure you understand something. You believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, part of the Godhead, that he died he was buried. He rose again for our sins. That is the gospel. She's like, well, I don't believe that. I said, then I'm not going to pray with you. Because that's what it comes down to. A while back, a lady in our church, her husband, he um, told me for a long time, his response was, I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus is God's son. And I said, I can't help you then. That's the most important part of everything. That is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. And so I remember it was just a while back. He called me on the phone. He said, you know what I just figured out the other day? I said, what? Jesus is God. He's God's son. He died for my sins. What do I need to do now to receive him? He already did receive him, technically, because he confessed the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Sometimes I think people think it's the prayer. I think sometimes we just do the prayer to make people feel better about it. It's your confession that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and your belief in the But we look at our text today and we look at this passage of scripture this morning and it's very important for us. And the outline's very simple today. It's a very simple message with some great truth there. Number one, as we dive in today, we see why, who do people say Jesus is? Number one. Who do people say that Jesus is? We see in the first part here in verse number 27, I don't think I had a word of prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into this thought. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for loving us and being our God and for all that you do. Bless our morning. I pray you give me strength this morning through the messages. We need you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I had two long days with some teenagers, and they did a, a, a chip challenge. This hot chip, it's supposed to be one of the hottest chips in the world. The three of them did it. I have the funniest video. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And Isaiah, you're in the service, so I'm not gossiping by talking about you. He literally went into the bathroom in the hotel room and turned the shower on, the faucet, and he's drinking water straight from the faucet. He had ice cream he's digging out with his hands trying to calm the heat. And if you think I'm lying, I have video to prove it. It was by far one of the funniest. You say, why? They, they'd wanted me to do it. There's no way I'd ever do something like that. Why would I put, it says, it comes in the package with a, a little tombstone. And it says, dangerous, hot chip inside. Don't touch your face or anything after you put the chip in your mouth. That just tells you not to eat the chip. But teenagers, they'll do it anyways. And so I had a long few days, and we so walked 20-plus miles up and down streets. Slept probably seven or eight hours in two days. Got home last night, went to bed a little early, 
And then my dad fell last night. I got a phone call in the middle of the night, and so I was up since 4 o'clock. I've been up off and on. He's okay. And so my mom was worried, so he went and got checked at the hospital. They didn't find anything up here, so he's fine. So that's a good thing. That's what he said. He called and said they didn't find anything in my head. So we knew everything's okay if they didn't find anything there. That's always his little joke. And so, um, so I'm a little tired this morning. And it's interesting. So this day marks, as I mentioned, 11 years of starting a church. It also marks 10 years ago is when my mom fell and broke her hip on this day. And then my dad fell on this day. So let's just pray we get through today and get off this day. And that will be a good thing. We look at verse 27 as we look and we dive into the notes. Who do people say Jesus is? We see in verse 27, the beginning there, he travels about 25 miles north with his disciples. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. This region was known as Dan in the Old Testament. And it was marked, and you think about the northern boundary of Israel, just a little south of Syria in that area. And as we think about those things, and as we look at it, Jesus goes to his disciples here. He takes them here. And I believe one of the reasons he took them this far north and went up out of the way was so that he could teach them about him and what was going to ha- take place. And so as we look at this, the f- he wanted to teach them two things. He wanted them to get two truths. The first truth is this, his person, who he is. He wanted the disciples to understand who he is. You say, well, didn't they know that? Do we have to go back and review all the sermons in the past? He feeds 5,000, then they aren't sure he could feed 4,000. They don't quite have it figured out yet. You say, well, how, how dumb are they not to figure We would be in the same boat. There's never been anybody like Jesus to ever walk on the face of this earth. And so there's going to be quite, and so he wanted to teach them two primary truths, his person, who he is, and then also his plan, what he came to do. Because this was another thing. The Jews thought that when their Messiah was going to come, that he would come to conquer and to take over. But that's not what Jesus came to do. That time will come but that was not at this time. And so as we look here, Caesarea Philippi, when we think about this place, it was named after Caesar, Caesarea. And then Philippi was named for Philip, the son of Herod. And so this region was known as the center of Baal worship in the Old Testament and then became a religious center for the worship of the Greek god Pan or Pan, however you want to say that. And there was also, the Roman emperor was also worshipped in the temple there. Citizens were required once a year to go into the temple and to cry out that Caesar is Lord. In addition, there's a picture here that I want you to put up on the screen for me, Joe. You look at these carvings into the hills in this area. There were gods placed on each of those spots that people would worship. So... Think with me for a minute. You think, why would Jesus take his disciples to this spot and teach them who he is? He wanted to remind them that he was God above all other gods. The God carved and had for so many different things, he was all of that rolled into one and far better than any of them. He was better than any God. There's a bunch of little G's in this world. But there's only one true God. And so Jesus takes them to this place. And I picture this as probably the background. Something of this nature. All these false gods 
lined up that people would worship and come to. And Jesus says, who do men say that I am? He's teaching them something here. And we see that in this passage. And as we look at this, you see he's not, he doesn't ask where people think he's coming from or even what he does. He wants to know who people think he is. The good news is that the disciples know their culture enough and they're around the people that live in that day to know what people say about Jesus. Do you know what your neighbors think about Jesus? Just a thought this morning. Do you know what most in your city think of Jesus today? Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And so they must have been talking about this with people, right? They had an answer. They knew what people said. And as we look at some of these responses, we see these things. It says, some say John the Baptist, but some say Elias and others, one of the prophets. And we look at those answers and we think about it. Well, John the Baptist, both John and Jesus preached righteousness. Kind of makes sense that maybe people thought that Jesus and John, you know, and they were related, right? Maybe they looked alike. Who knows? Jesus didn't eat, uh, you know, the locust and honey like John. Or maybe he did, and it just doesn't talk about it. And remember how Herod thought that um, John the Baptist was raised from the dead? But John the Baptist was a forerunner. John the Baptist is not God. Elijah. We think about Elijah. Elias, Elijah, Greek, Hebrew. And Elijah and Jesus did convincing miracles. Elijah was transported to heaven without dying. And the scripture even tells us in the book of Malachi that Elijah will return before the day of the Lord. So it's sensible that some people might think this. And then others said he's one of the prophets. And Jesus seemed like a prophet, right? He spoke words that no one else had ever spoken. And no one had heard anything like that. Maybe they, he reminded them of Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, whatever the case may be. But this is what we know. People had a lot of different opinions and assumptions of who Jesus was. Think about our world today. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, but wasn't the Son of God or crucified on a cross. Hindus believe Jesus is just one of millions of gods. Buddhists, according to the Dalai Lama, believe Jesus is the model of a spiritually mature, good, and warm-hearted person. Jews believe that Jesus was a prophet and teacher, but not God. Mormons believe that Jesus is a small God, but that any human can also become a God. Think about that. Mormon, um, Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was once the archangel Michael and not God in the flesh. Atheists deny Jesus ever existed at all. Agnostics don't know what to believe about Jesus. And many in our society believe that Jesus was a good teacher or a good man, but that's about where it stops. And so as we look at the text today, the world 2,000 years ago is not much different than what it is today. Who do men say that I am? And there's a multitude of answers to that today. But then we see number two in our outline as we continue on. Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am? Verse 29 and he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? After listening to these answers, Jesus moves from what the people thought he was or who he was to ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? You see that word, but, it's a good transitional word. 
that introduces a contrast. It's as if he's saying, okay, I'm glad you know what people think, but I want to know what you think. The word ye there, it's emphatic. Could be also translated here, but who do you yourselves say that I am? You know, I always, when I see when Jesus, there's a few times in the gospel where you see he says, I am. It always reminds me back to the Old Testament and Moses and the burnt bush and what took place in Exodus chapter four, 3, verse 14. I am that I am. Jesus is not just content having the disciples hanging out with him. He's calling them to a commitment, which we'll see in a couple weeks when we get there. Peter emphatically speaks up first, and he says, Thou art the Christ. You see that there? By using the word the, he is saying, You are the only one. There is no one other than you. And the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew title Messiah, which means the anointed one. What Peter is saying here is, you're the one who will cleanse our culture, reestablish Israel's supremacy among the nations, and usher in an era of peace and holiness. You are the one. You're the one that was chosen by God. You are Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one. The one and only. Seems that Peter got it right, doesn't it? He did. And yet, as Jesus often does, as we've looked at the Gospels, and especially here through the book of Mark, he gives a strange command there in verse number 30. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Why? It's always my first. Aren't we supposed to go with the Gospel and tell everybody? What's going on here? The word charged means he admonished them sharply. Why would Jesus do this? Peter got it right. He's the Christ. <laughs> well, we could see in a few minutes, he also got it wrong, because if he really believed that Jesus was the Christ, he wouldn't have said what he said to him. In the if you are the anointed chosen one, and you get rebuked by a common man, that man does not think that you are all that he says that you are. In fact, Peter kind of claims to be greater than Christ by telling Christ, you're not going to do this. And we'll get there in a minute, and we'll look at how that shapes our society today. But you say, why didn't he want them to share this? Jesus wanted him to, wanted them to keep it quiet so that the crowds didn't show up. It wasn't his time to die yet. Yeah, his time's coming. His time's coming. And they didn't know everything they needed to know about him yet. And so we see this morning in the message, we see that it begins with, number one, who do people say that Jesus is? Number two, who do you say that Jesus is? Which leads to number three, what Jesus says about himself. That's found in verse 31 through verse number 33. And it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You will not fully understand 
who Jesus is till you understand why he came. That's very important to understand. And we see here that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must, the word must there means necessary, has need of, under compulsion. So what must the Son of Man experience? There are four things that we see here. As we look here, the first one is, letter A, we see he must suffer many things. Up to this point, Peter just said that he's the Messiah, right? Up to this point, no one had been able to put the two together of Isaiah 53 and the Messiah. He was going to suffer for the sins of the world. He's going to suffer for the sins of mankind. And the Bible makes that clear. It's clear in the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied about it, that by his stripes we are healed. And so what Jesus says about himself is he must suffer many things. Letter B, we see he must be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes. It's necessary. This is what's going to happen. Did this happen? Yes. We see letter C, that he must be killed. There are those out there that say, well, Jesus didn't really die. He kind of just swooned there. You get nailed to a cross and get beaten like Jesus did and hang there and stay alive. He must be killed. His death had to happen. Sin's penalty is death, right? So he must be killed. And then what else does Jesus say? Must after three days rise again. I want you to understand as we look at this, this is not Jesus predicting what would happen. This is God's preordained plan before the foundation of the world was ever created. The, the Son of Man must suffer. And as we look at this, all of these things had to happen the way they did because that's how God wanted it to be done. For Jesus to absorb our iniquities, as the song we sang this morning, he became sin who knew no sin. He had to become my sin. The sins of the world must be, he must suffer. As we look at these things, we think about Hebrews 9, verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. His blood must have been shed. He must die. He must rise again. The Bible tells us in Romans 4.25, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. It's important to know that Jesus didn't die a helpless victim at the hands of the Romans and the re religious leaders. He came willing to die for the sin world he knew what he was getting into before he ever came and he was willing to drink the cup and he is willing to come and to suffer on the cross he was willing to be rejected of the people he was willing to die for us and he was willing to rise again it must happen and it was going to happen as we look at this and when we think about it what did satan want to do when he tempted Jesus earlier. He wanted to give Jesus the world without dying. Right? 
There's a reason for that. And in fact, if we look very closely, and I'm going to have you look at a verse, and the Bible tells us in Luke 4.13, I want you to pull up this verse sooner, Joe. It's further down in your notes. At the Luke 4.13, do you have that there? And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Satan's goal was to get Jesus not to do what he needed to do. The season had come again. Peter was being used against Jesus right here. Now, you say, is Peter saved? So how does that all work? We'll go a little deeper here in just a minute. The problem that we have is this. There is God's way or the devil's way and the world's way. There is no in-between. So if Jesus says, this must happen, guess what? It has to happen. So for you to say, no, Lord, it doesn't need to happen, are you for him or against him? That's going against him. Because there's only one of two sides to be on. Hey, this morning, you're either on the Lord's side. I hear Christians all the time. I'm glad God's on my side. He's not on your side, okay? When you get saved, you go to his side. Praise God for that. And I know you, this is just a twisting of words. But the opposite of that is the world's side, Satan's side. Satan wanted Jesus not to die and do what he came to do. And what does Peter do? He reasons in his mind and himself. You see what the Bible says here. It says that he must suffer. And what does Peter say? It says, and after he spake that openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. The idea here is that Peter didn't do this in front of everybody. He took him off to the side, but then he let him have it. And it means to admonish sharply. We look, we're like, how could Peter do this? But before you get too hard on Peter, some of us don't like God's plans either, do we? When something happens in life that we don't like, or that we don't think is fair, we let God know about it, right? We go a little deep there. Peter called him Lord, and then told him what type of Lord he should be. That's not how it works. Peter got it right when he confessed Jesus as the Christ, but he got it wrong when he tried to remove the cross and the resurrection. And when we look at these things, and as we try and tie them together and go a little deeper here this morning, we look at it. Peter pushes back when he heard about the suffering in store for the Savior. There's one of two things that popped in my mind. Peter loved Jesus. Don't you think Peter loved Jesus? 
I really think he did. I think he loved Jesus a lot. Do you think he wanted him to suffer? Do you think he wanted him to die? No. So, does it say that this is why Peter did this? No, I'm just throwing out some thoughts here, okay? We're just thinking for a minute. When you look at a passage of Scripture, it's good to think. But then don't major on the things that it doesn't say, but go with what it does say. But think a little bit. So Peter could have done this out of love. Peter could have been like, I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to do these things. You're not going to do it. Or some other thoughts. Maybe Peter, if he had to suffer, he was going to have to suffer. And he didn't want to suffer. There are some thoughts either way around there. Either way you see it here, we see the fact that humanism in Peter here creeps in to what Peter's talking about. Peter had no right to tell the anointed one, the chosen one, what he could and could not do. The creature, or the creation, cannot tell the creator how to do it, or what to do. But that's what Peter does right here. Jesus had to suffer. He had to go through things. But what Peter was really doing was, he was trying to make Jesus into the God he wanted him to be. But in doing that, that would remove the gospel message from Jesus. Say, well, do people do that? Do people really do that? Oh, they do it all the time. My God would never send someone to hell. You ever hear that statement made? Then you haven't read your Bible. Because that's what it says. He's the one who says it. He's the one who decides. We don't get to put him in our own little box. I've had many people over the years ask me, if God is so loving, what if someone in a tribe in Africa in the middle of nowhere that's never heard of him and they die without him, would he, would he send them to hell? And you have people give all sorts of things through there. If someone dies in this lifetime without Jesus Christ, they die and they go to hell, period. I don't care if you trust in some other little God that they say is like Jesus. It's either Jesus or nothing. Say, well, your religion, you're, you're, that's kind of a tough thing to say. Isn't that kind of, you're being very narrow-minded. The Bible is pretty narrow. And that's my guide. When we look at it and you think about it, and, you know, people, well, my, God, God loves all people. He did die for all people, didn't he? But that doesn't excuse you to live your life of sin the way you want to, like people think. So what we do a lot of times is we like to put God into our own little box and make him what we want him to be, and that's exactly what Peter does right here. You're not going to suffer. You're not going to do these things. You're going to be the God I want you to be. It doesn't work that way. In our day and age that we live, there's a phrase I want to give you, and I think it's there in your notes. When we think of American spirituality today, three words come to my mind. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Now, those are big words, 
And I gave you the definition of those there. Moralistic, God wants people to behave. Therapeutic, God wants us to be happy and well-adjusted. Doesn't that sound like modern Christianity today? God just wants you happy. He just wants you happy. You can be happy if you do what he tells you to do. There's always a condition to things with God that people like to mention. No, he wants you happy. We go further down that line. Then deism, that there is a God. He made the world, and then he left it alone. That God isn't personally involved in the everyday lives of people. Spiritually speaking, these three words make up a great heap of the spiritualness, Christian spiritualness of, the, of America today. Three of the top five best-selling Christian books right now. I'm just going to read the back cover to you. I'm not going to tell you the name of them. I'm going to leave that out. You can go figure it out for yourself. I'm just going to read you the back page. The top three. Uh, three of five. Because there's five total books there, and I'm just giving you three. If you really want to dive deeper, you can. This is what the first one says. And so listen as I read it here. Here's the good news, though. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not defective or faulty. All through the day, dwell on what your creator says about you. I'm healthy. I'm valuable. I'm victorious. When you think better, you'll live better. And it's a $24 book. I wouldn't spend 24 cents on that book. There is some truth in there. Because your identity in Christ is very important. But if you notice something, it's our identity in Christ. So till you get in Christ, you're not good. You have no hope. And yet not, what was the song we sang this morning? Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And we get this idea, and that's how our world is today. Let me read another one for you. The key to the life you want is inside you. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I think of the Holy Spirit. That's where my thought would go, right? That would be my thought. One question lies behind every struggle we face. How do I deal with myself? Behind all of our stumblings, behind each of our missteps, Behind every one of our failings lies an ability to handle the I factor. More than self-worth or self-respect, beyond even character and perception of purpose, the I factor is about managing yourself, your whole life well, weaving together personal stories, practical principles, and profound biblical truth. The I factor provides the key to achieving the life of greatness that you are destined for. There is some truth in there, in what's said there. And you say, did you, I read through these books before I would just read these things. I could give you another one, but for sake of time, I'm not going to do that. This is what Christians are reading today. Not about getting a better relationship with Jesus. You and I and ourselves we're broken. And even after we're saved, guess what? We still keep sinning. It doesn't stop. I wish it stopped. 
I really do. And someday it will. So this is the thing. I cannot make Brian better. I can let Brian calm down a little bit and let the spirit lead. But in our world today, this is the trash that Christians are feeding into. I would call it spiritual junk food. It might taste good going down, but it's not going to do you any good and get you anything that you need in your Christian life. Why? Because we want to shape God and what we want him to be in our lives. That's what we see. And may I just remind you this morning that the closer we get to the Lord coming, we've got to be very careful about the stuff that we plug into our minds the stuff that we read. The Bible says 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And it's so important, Christian, like Acts 17, 11 talks about the Bereans there. These were more noble than these in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. That's what you need to do. You read a book on Christianity, have this book right there. This is our guide, right? This is our source of truth. If a book goes against this book, throw that book out and go with this book. This book's always right. But that's how we, it is in our world today. And, it lo- and in verse number 33 it says, But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying and you see peter tries to rebuke jesus in private right he tried to take him off but then jesus rebukes peter to everyone right they're all the disciples and he uses this phrase get thee behind me satan he's literally telling peter to get out of his sight and then tells him you are acting like satan he isn't saying you are satan Because Satan can't come into a believer. But when you're against the things of God, you're doing what Satan does. So at that moment, he was acting like Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. It's hell. And when we look at these things, and as we try and tie it all together, this is what we see, what Jesus says was wrong with Peter. Are you ready? Look at the end of verse 33. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. When Peter put his mind on what made sense to him, he was way off base. If he had set his mind on the things of God, he would have responded differently. Because he just said that Jesus is God, right? He says that. And then he treats him like he's not. As I close this morning, I want to give you a couple thoughts on how we can keep our minds and our hearts on the things of God. Because you see the problem with Peter right here was the fact that he didn't savor the things of God, but the things of men. That's a natural response inside of you and me. That's the way it is. Our flesh and selfishness. We would rather do what feels good to us than what is right with God. So let me give you a couple thoughts as we close here this morning. How can we keep our mindset? But think about this verse in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep thy 
heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. To keep means to be under the control, and all diligence refers to having guards to protect something valuable. We must be vigilant and have our guard up to keep our minds where they need to be. What are some things we can do to help us with that? A couple of application points, and we'll be done this morning. Number one, rehearse the gospel on a daily basis. Say, what do you mean? Go over the gospel to yourself. What Jesus did. If it weren't for the grace of God, where would we be today? Thank God for his amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Because what happens is when you rehearse the gospel on a daily basis, it reminds you of who you are and who he is. Number two, seek to have a gospel conversation every day. When you rehearse it and you're going over the gospel, you're going to want to share it with somebody. You know, your football team or your sports team does well. You want people to know what happened, right? Do you see that play? That play was so amazing. Or do you see this? Or this happened to me. You know, you, you would be amazed to see the, that chip challenge that did. Why did I tell you about it? Because it was the funniest thing I've seen in a long time. That's why I talked about it. It was on my mind. If the gospel's on your mind, you're going to share it with someone. Yesterday as I'm doing those door hangers and there were a lot of door hangers that we did. My mind started thinking back to 11 years ago as I was doing a bunch of door hangers starting a church. And then my mind got back to, well, Brian, how many door hangers, how much do you do in Chino now? That wasn't the thought I wanted to have. But when you're doing spiritual things and your mind's on spiritual things and witnessing to people, it reminds you that you should be doing it. So go over it, rehearse it, seek to have a gospel-centered conversation every day. Next one, number three, don't let your feelings run your train. Who do I got? Eddie, could you come up here for a second? Little Eddie. Isaiah, come here real quick. And Brisa, come here. I need your help. Ah, I shouldn't have called someone up with a Raider jacket on. Maybe you can get right with the Lord this morning and get rid of that Raider jacket. 2-0, and oh, how in the world does that happen? All right, so Brisa, we're going to have you face that way. You're the front of the train. You're right here, and then you're the rear of the train. That's what Raider fans get. That's just how it goes. And so, our train, as we think about our lives, and as I mentioned here, don't let your feelings run your train. You think about this, the engine of our train needs to be facts. Facts would be what the Word of God says. That should lead us as we go through life. The, the coal compartment is our faith. Our faith should be feeding the facts driving us through life. And then the caboose is our feelings. This is the order it should be. It should be in our life, facts, faith, feelings. So when you're going through life, you guys are a train, so you guys are going to, can you guys do this and circle around the platform for me? Go ahead, circle around once. There you go. Can someone give me a choo-choo and, can you, a little, little noise okay so 
That's how it's supposed to be because if you lead a life by facts, your faith is going to keep going and your feelings are behind. This is the problem. We switch it this way. We let our feelings lead us. I just don't feel that that's what it means. I just don't feel that that's what God would say or do. I just don't feel like telling someone about Jesus today. And when feelings lead the train, you can stop and do whatever you want at any given moment because your feelings change every other minute. One minute you could be the happiest person, one minute you could be the saddest person in all the world. And let me just say this. Women are not the only ones whose feelings go all over the place. Men's feelings are all over the place too. Let's be honest about that today. But this is the problem. Don't let your train be driven by your feelings. You must let facts. This book must be what guides the train of your life. And then your faith is what fuels the train to keep it going where it needs to go, and your feelings are on the back burner along for the ride. Then the feelings can do whatever they want to do in the caboose, but they're not running the show. You let the feelings run the train, and you're going to stop a lot. That's why it's so important. You guys did a great job. All right, you guys can go be seated. Don't let your feelings run your train. You get in, we, I get in a lot of trouble in my own life when my feelings run things. Facts, faith, feelings. Don't forget that. And then number four and lastly, live a gospel-centered, self-effacing, God-glorifying life. It's not about you. Life is not about you. No matter what a book may tell you, it's not about you. Let me share this little secret with you. The secret is not in yourself. The secret is in him. The secret is in the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Seek the Savior with all you have. Live for his pleasure. And you'll grow and do what God's called you to do. So the question this morning as we close and as we finish up is this. We saw who people said that Jesus was. John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet. But the most important question in all the world, who do you say that I am? What Your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning as we finish up.